0: Happy New Year, Distilling Theology listeners. We hope you all had a wonderful midwinter no reason holiday season, and we're thrilled to be back with you on the air. This week's episode has been aged to perfection over the last six months since it was distilled or... Recorded. Uh, It's been a wild ride, and this particular episode is loads of fun with fellowship, with good friends, delicious spirits, and as always, thoughtful conversations about important topics related to theology. So fasten your seatbelts, folks, and keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times. This ride stops for no reason. Here is Distilling Theology, episode 79. You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake, and I'm Justin.
1: And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits.
0: And dad jokes. Amen.
2: What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you.
0: Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. Distilling Theology.
2: Welcome to Episode 79 of Distilling Theology. We have a wet and wild episode for you today. Why wet? Well, because today we're going to be immersing ourselves in the topic of credo baptism. Why wild, you might ask? Well, we're going to be drinking, like always. We'll be in high spirits while we sip spirits. I am your Almost Never host, Eric, joined by your all-the-time hosts, Justin and Blake. How are you guys doing? Oh man, what an intro. As
1: always, coming in with the fire. I love it. I love it. I have been very well. I have been I have been just doused and dunked with blessings.
0: Uh <laughs> Blake, how have you been, my friend? You know, it's been sprinkling a lot in uh upstate New York the last couple of weeks and uh I'm here sprinkling? to sprinkle my presence into this episode, so, you know. Uh let the game begin. No, I'm we should have, good. We
2: should have gotten a sponsor for this episode. Are dunkaroos still a thing? <laughs> or Dunkin Oreos? Oreos cause dunk
1: in Oreos, because you got to dunk them in milk.
2: Oh
0: man, You've got to properly baptize the Oreo before you consume it. There it is. We're we're off to the races. Uh, but on that note, gentlemen, what are we drinking
2: tonight? Tonight we are drinking Ardbeg's Anno, which is. Uh, I think their second most recent release, they had Wee Beastie come out more recently, but uh, this is Anno, uh, unaged stated single malt scotch whiskey from Isla. So it's got that heavy peat, especially because it's an Ardbeg, so of all the Islas, it's going to be a little more peated than uh, I think some other ones would be. Um, it is 46.6% ABV, um, and it's a tasty little dram
0: from what I've had before, so... And on their website, they mentioned that this is part of Art Bag's ultimate range, which I guess is these like releases. I would assume that would include, uh, I don't know how to say these names, so I'm going to butcher them, but Ugedale uh, and Cory Reckon? Yep. I think. Uge- Ugedale is how you know, I think, yeah. Cory Reckon. Um, but they say about this one that it's a blend of whiskeys that have been aged. So it's, it's all like their whiskey, but it's a combination of uh, aged in Pedro Jimenez virgin charred oak, and ex-bourbon casks. Mm-hmm. So that should impart some interesting uh, flavor notes to a delightful peated, peated whiskey. Um, we tasted an bag a while ago, and I'm going to see when exactly, because I forgot.
2: We've tasted a few together, and for anyone who has any sort of frame of reference for doll or Koryv Reckon, I feel like based on past experiences with Anno, because of that Pedro Jimenez, it's going to land somewhere between the doll and Cory Reckon from a flavor profile standpoint um the Oogadol has that sherry more of that sherry finished or sherry aged um uh, scotch in that that blending but yep. it it uh it's going to be a lower proof than both of those so on the palette it's going to probably seem a little in, less intense whereas uh corey Vreckin is probably the most intense other than the ardbeg supernova that i've had so
0: yeah it's a great name. Also, for reference, Ugadale uh, is about $90 around me locally here, um, and N.O. is just under $60. And um, they have the 10-year-old for 50 and we tasted the 10 back on episode 33 with mm. Austin Rifle talking about the canon of script or oh, the man. canonicity of Scripture. So Austin's my dude. All the memes. Uh, but anyways, what do you guys, Justin, what are you getting on the nose there, buddy? Yeah, I've been sniffing this for a little while now. Um it's pretty good. You, I'm getting a little bit of vanilla,
1: a little bit of seaweed. So mm-hmm. it's almost a little bit briny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um.
2: But there's still lemon. Yep. Salt. Yeah. Get a little bit of a roasted mallow. Maybe even yeah. roasted yeah, yeah, toffee. Yeah, yeah. Um. There's a there's a hint of um like asphalt on a hot summer day. Maybe, maybe uh, after a rainstorm and the sun's come back. I don't know if you guys have that over on the East Coast, but in Colorado, it rains for like 20, 30 minutes and the
0: sun comes out and it gets, yeah. it's like the only time it gets humid for like a brief Sounds period like in Colorado. Contact. You know what? You know what? Okay, that brings me to a little pet peeve of mine that's totally okay. unrelated to whiskey. <laughs> but you know how everybody says, Everywhere I've ever been, I travel, I visit people like, oh, you know, just that's just Michigan weather. Just wait 15 minutes or wait 20 minutes and the weather will change. But people say that everywhere. They say that like it's <laughs> Dude, so unique to their area. I grew like, up in
2: California. It. Nobody says that in California. It's okay, always well, you know the same weather. California doesn't count. So like, <laughs> California. <laughs> <laughs> like I can talk from the People's Republic of New York. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> people. <laughs> I don't know.
2: I mean, I you guys should come out to Colorado sometime because the weather is wild here in the, especially in the summertime yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. in the winter, dude, we'll get, we'll get, oh, yeah. we'll get like almost a foot of snow. There are days in the winter where it snows all night by noon that morning, sun's out and it's all melted. It's gone. It's crazy. We have that sometimes in New York. Probably it's like warm. More like like you want to be in shorts. Oh yeah. It's, it's nuts. That's a
0: little extreme. That's fair. Yeah. This is, this smells good. You guys already hit a lot of the notes. I was going to, you know I do get a little bit of that so with with Ardbeg I almost always get more heavy charcoal smoke yeah. than a lot of the other peated Scotches that I love and I like that like I like that about Ardbeg um, I just had a Talisker 10 last night and I love the the camp smoke and and the pipe tobacco smoke but there's something fun about all the Ardbegs with that charcoal-y, like sharper yeah. smoke for lack of a better mm-hmm. word
2: it's yeah. got like the the creosote like if you clean out a chimney it's yeah. that dirty um, black smoke that is just stuck and <laughs> like grown on the side of something and you scrape it off. Yeah.
0: You're really selling this thing. <laughs> oh no, I love it.
2: Dude. So fun story, quick story. Uh, the I, this is many, many, many Thanksgivings ago. I brought a bottle of Ardbeg 10 to my family's Thanksgiving. No, none of the other ones, my family members drink scotch. I just brought it for me. So after dinner, I cracked it open and my mom and sister just you know, lost their minds. They just from me opening the bottle, they're like, oh my gosh, it smells like tar in here. It smells like just <laughs> smoky tar. And I'm like, I know it smells delicious. So they're like, no, it's so gross. Like just having an open glass anywhere near them, they were so offended by it. And um yeah, I'd say Ardbag along with Lagavulin or not Logavula uh, mm-hmm. would probably be mm-hmm. two of the most offensive of all of yeah. the Isla scotches. And I mean that in a good way. Like it, they're pungent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah,
1: it's well. Think about it. It's like a good cheese, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, yeah. usually the more pungent the cheese, the better it is.
0: Yeah. My brother was smoking some brisket earlier this summer, and I walked outside. I didn't know he was doing that. I just walked outside. He had like a little tiny smoker, and I was like, "Why does it smell like L- Lagavulin out here?" <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and he was like, and, he, and then he pointed me at the smoker, and I was like, "Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense." Anyways, <laughs> on that note, gentlemen, cheers. Cheers. Oh, that's um,
1: that's pretty that's pretty good. That's pretty mm-hmm. unique. I mean, That's you get assertive. The, well, you got yeah, you got the briny peatedness, Yeah, but it's pretty aggressive.
0: Um, right out I of get the gate, then it's through the middle.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'd say that lemon zest that you're talking about, Justin, I, that kind of hits initially on the palate. Some of it lingers in the the finish. Um, but yeah, I mean that creosote also comes out real strong. It's yeah, oh, yeah. It's
1: yeah. yeah it's good, <laughs> man. It's good. <laughs> Um, there's definitely go ahead. Sorry, no use, you sir. I was just gonna say there's definitely like a handful
0: of spices in there, um, ginger, pepper, cinnamon. You know, it's funny now. Now going Mm. back for a second, smell the sea salt is much more pronounced after tasting it to me. Yeah, okay, that's always an interesting thing. Is like you smell it, you taste it, and then you go back and smell it again, and it's interesting to me to see either new notes come come to light or some notes become more pronounced than others after the taste. Yeah. Mm -mm. Yeah. The, the sherry presence
2: is, is not really there other than maybe some, some, there's maybe a little bit of chocolatey notes on the front end, like a really Mm -hmm. dry, dark cacao. Um, on the, like when you first take a sip, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's got like a, yeah, the, the beginning is really lemony. I really like it. One thing that I remember from my previous experiences with Anno um, it's one of my lesser favorite of the Ardbegs. I think it's actually, it's fan. There's not an Ardbeg I don't like, <clears throat> but it, it has a shorter finish for me than okay, even like yeah. the 10 year, um, or even the wee beastie. Um, I don't know if it's just the, the proof on it, but I think if, uh, the proof were a little bit higher, we'd see a little bit more of a lengthy finish that doesn't turn quite as astringent and it would maybe stay a little sweeter, but yeah, yeah. it's
0: good. It's a solid whiskey. What we're saying is, distilleries give us more cask strength stuff. Yeah, let us water it down <laughs> if we want to, and we if don't. We that's the there. That's the most American thing I've heard all day. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna cost more though. Yeah, yeah. your whiskey's yeah, gonna cost true. more at a higher proof. What?
2: Speaking of watering things down, that didn't work. <laughs> oh well. <laughs> congratulations, you played yourself. <laughs> I don't know water. So we're talking about water something tonight, right? Speaking
1: of watering it, we're going to talk about watering believers tonight. <laughs> uh, in
2: you the waters of baptism. On... I missed most of that you cut out. Oh man. man. That's okay. I'll listen. listen back and hear what you said later. We're going to be talking about I'm the sure water. It was really funny. I would have laughed. Okay. <laughs>
1: Uh, as we as we dive into the waters of baptism, no pun intended, mm. uh, just getting puns were fully intended. Uh, but before we do that, we want to turn to page 114 of our oh, yes. Valley of Vision, uh, and we're going to open with some prayer. Blake, if you would grace us with that deep, sweet voice of yours, why don't you baptize our ears in a good prayer uh, from the Valley of Vision, if you would be so kind? I think you're mixing this metaphor a little bit too
2: much. <laughs> this is page
0: 114 of the Valley of Vision, a Neophytes Devotion. Glorious and holy God, provocations against thy divine majesty have filled my whole life. My offenses have been countless and aggravated. Conscience has rebuked me. Friends have admonished me. The examples of others have reproached me. Thy rod has chastised me. Thy kindnesses allured me. Thou hast seen and abhorred all my sins, and couldst easily and justly have punished me. Yet thou hast spared me been gracious unto me, given me thy help, invited me to thy table. Lord, I thankfully obey thy call, accept thy goodness, acquiesce in thy gospel appointments. I believe that Jesus, thy Son, has plenteous redemption. I apply to him for his benefits, give up my mind implicitly to his instructions trust in glory in his sacrifice, revere and love his authority, pray that his grace may reign in my life. I will not love a world that crucified him, neither cherish nor endure the sin that put him to grief, nor suffer him to be wounded by others. At the cross that relieves my conscience, let me learn lessons of self-denial, forgiveness, and submission feel motives to obedience, find resources for all needs of the divine life. Then let me be what I profess, do as well as teach, live as well as hear, religion.
1: Amen. Amen. Well, the time is nigh. We introduced last week baptism. We talked about the different views, some of the different options that are available to you. Um, <laughs> although we, of course, believe options. that only one of those options just, is correct. It's biblical. Uh, yeah. It's a smorgasbord. Um, however, just pick whatever you like, you know, right. whatever sounds the best. Right. Option. Um, <laughs> however, within the realm of orthodoxy, there are some that are, um, acceptable, and then there are others that are, of course, not, um, which we, we talked about, for example, the papist view. But, uh, as we, as we jump into this, um, I just want to remind everybody quickly, um, for example, Blake and I, Blake being Presbyterian, myself being Baptist, as far as baptism goes, we are much more—and we touched on this—we are much more closely related than, for example, Blake would be with uh, with the Papists, who also sprinkle children or uh, baptize children. Despite the fact that they baptize kids, he and I are actually much closer in relation to how we understand baptism. Um, we are like 98.9% of the way there— uh, Ultimately, the only difference is coming down to how we view the covenants and who's included in the covenants uh, as far as who's going to be the recipients of said baptisms. Um, (laughs) So it's a big deal, it's certainly a big deal, Uh, Mm. and it impacts uh, a lot of of how we do church, right? It impacts how we uh, practice religion, uh, ultimately, but... um, But one of the reasons that Blake and I can come together and worship together is because we are so closely related in uh, church history and and orthodoxy. And so um, just with that in mind, um, Eric, why don't you tell uh, us—do you have the notes here? (laughs) Presumably you have the notes. Why don't you read
0: for us, or I can read for us. Look, can one of you goofballs explain to me what is credo-baptism? Justin, you would do great at that, because
2: right before we started recording, you looked up a definition for credo-baptism, only because I had not, you know, found a satisfactory one. So give us the definition, Justin.
1: I've been told I have a face for radio. So, (laughs) credo-baptism is the practice of baptizing only those who are able to make a profession of faith. The word credo comes from the Latin word creed, and credo-baptism is also known as believer's baptism. I've also heard it called uh, di- uh, disciple-baptism, baptism of disciples only. Credo-baptists maintain that it is improper to baptize infants, also known as pedobaptism, baptism uh, since there is no account in Scripture where infants are baptized, um, as well as many other reasons in which we'll get into tonight. Um, and we would also practice baptism by immersion into the water— Submerged, dunked, Dunkaroos, if you will. Yeah, Dunkaroos. As they call great, it down under. Great treat, uh, by the way. I think
2: that's what they call baptism in Australia, right?
0: Any Australian yeah, listeners, call it the tell us. Yeah. You, yeah, Dunkaroos. We have some Australian listeners, actually. So. Yeah. Yeah. We do, in fact, yes. We do indeed. Um, <laughs> right.
2: Not anymore. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's over. It's and over.
0: It was. It was goodwill. It lasted. It was um, goodwill. It lasted mm-hmm. just like this episode. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, um, <laughs> so, can you guys tell me? Um, From, Because obviously last week, Justin, you and I talked about the the Baptist faith and message that is put out from the SBC. Um, And you took issue with a couple of the points that they put out there on their baptism statement. So from a confessional particular Baptist, particularly those Baptists who adhere to the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, um, what are some of the statements or implications of... Baptist, related to baptism from that confession from your confession so so i, I got
2: this i can i can read this but i think uh yeah new york came out just a little bit there blake i what don't know I do? if I, <laughs> yeah i don't know you said something it sounded new york like anyway um sometimes so like that. uh with the 1689 or the second london baptist confession is sometimes sometimes called um It talks about baptism and the Lord's Supper together in chapter 28. And then chapter 29, it dives a little bit more into baptism specifically. Um, Paragraph 1 of chapter 28 says, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. I think we'll get into that. Appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. And we will skip over to chapter 29 now, specifically of baptism. Paragraph one says that baptism is an ordinance of the new Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection of his being engrafted into him of remission of sins and of giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Now that paragraph is actually very similar to 28, uh, chapter 28, paragraph one of the Westminster Confession. We might get into some of the differences there, but, um, you know, most Baptists would look at at, uh, the Westminster and say, hey, paragraph one, chapter 28, that's a really good definition of baptism. Um, At least that section is. And (laughs) paragraph two of the 1689, I'll continue. It says that those who do actually profess repentance towards God faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. Paragraph three, the outward element to be used in this ordinance is water, wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And paragraph four, I doubt we'll get too much into this, but uh, immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. And that is the entire chapter on baptism in the 1689.
1: Yeah, uh actually there's a couple of different catechisms out there for us Baptists. So one is obviously Keech's uh catechism, often referred to as the Baptist Catechism, but also I really appreciate uh Hercules Collins uh mm, an Orthodox me catechism me and he gets very deep into baptism. There's a lot there. Um and very quickly, uh question sixty nine uh jumps in and says, What is baptism? And he says, immersion or dipping of the person in the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, by such who are duly qualified by Christ. In other words, you're repentant and you you believe. Um, and then who are the proper subjects of this ordinance? Those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in, and obedience in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, it goes on to talk about infants and so on, but um, a lot of that can be summed up here in the very first uh question as far as who the subjects are, Uh, repentance is one of the qualifications uh, put forth uh, to be part of the covenant of grace, and hence why the only people that are recipients of said baptism is because they have repented and been grafted
0: in. So, Well, let me ask you guys a question, which again, we we talked about this a little bit last week um, on our kind of general catch-all of baptism, and I'm going to go a little bit out of order here because I think it'll lead into the next deeper question here, but... What would you guys consider to be some of the major differences or distinctions? Because we love that as as students of theology, mm-hmm. um, between 1689 federalism's form of creta of baptism and non-confessional forms of creta baptism mm-hmm. that we see very predominant throughout the American evangelical church, uh, particularly over the last fifty to sixty years.
1: Well, uh, <laughs> I was where to begin?
2: Yeah, <laughs> um, Want to go, Justin. We, yeah, we, we
1: touched on this a little bit last week as well. Uh, a lot of the predominant, um, quote-unquote, credo-baptists of the day um, are very uh, memorialist or symbolic only as far as mm-hmm. what their view of baptism actually entails and, and the, mm-hmm. the, what it does. And so if we're going to go historic uh, Baptists, we're going to go particular Baptist here, um, we actually do hold to a Reformed view of baptism, that it is in fact... Uh, a efficacious it does things there are benefits uh in partaking in the ordinance um, it is actually um, procu- procuring something in the believer um mm-hmm. there is there is benefits this, mm-hmm. in, yeah go ahead i was just going to
2: clara help that the spirit is at work in the believer mm-hmm. in the believers obedience and baptism the spirit can, uh, um, apply grace and blessings. You know, we see it as a means of grace and that mm-hmm. not just for the one partaking in baptism, but even for those observing who are members of the church, um, that we see, uh, uh sanctification part- uh, taking place amongst the body yes. and, and for that person being baptized because of the, the contemplation of what it means, the baptism means. So, um, yeah, we wouldn't—it's it would, not just a memorial, it's not just a, a, um, you know, something fun to do and get more yeah. butts in the seats.
1: Well, Keech's Catechism talks on this. We talk, Again, we talked about this last week briefly when we were going through the the differing views, um, but the question for the Catechism, question 95 says, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby which, whereby which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption, says the outward and ordinary means— uh, are his ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, and then it says, "How are they effective means of salvation?" It says, baptism and Lord's Supper become effectual means of salvation, not by the virtue in them or him that administers it, but by the blessings of Christ and the working of His Holy Spirit in them that by faith receive them? And then, lastly, it talks about he's got this whole section. I highly recommend reading this. There's a whole section um, that talks about how can it be a means of grace and so on but they are in fact means of grace and there are benefits there are it, it is a sign of our grafting into the covenant of grace.
2: Mhm. And I think one other difference and I, I didn't grow up in in non-confessional Baptist churches or anything um but from what I've what little I've observed and uh, little conversations I've had um I would say that they're not coming. <clears throat> they're not coming at it from a confessional perspective. They might mm-hmm. land in a similar place um, as Reformed Baptists, but non-Reformed Baptists would would still obviously be they'd be Credo Baptists. But um, the the reasoning to get there might be slightly different. They might not be using covenant theology. Um, yeah, but uh, interestingly enough, the conversations I've had seem to be. And it's ironic that it's re- it's grounded in more of a regulative principle type of argument. It's what do we see commanded of us in the New Testament? Um, what are we told to do? What is, uh, do we think are arguments from silence or, or things of that nature? And so there's very much a looking at what positive law they see. They might not articulate it that way. Um, but that usually is the, <clears throat> what I've seen, the the train of thought that leads to Uh, a non-confessional credo-baptist position, which I think is ironic that it's kind of a reform, a regulative principle type of approach.
0: I'm going to push back on that just a little bit because Uh I think that's a really good observation, but I think it would more fall in line with a simplistic biblicism, which I think would distinguish it from um, the more robust holistic biblical theology that's attempted in 1689 federalism. Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. I say that not to insult people, because <clears throat> I, I I think what you're getting at, what you're alluding to is right, is that the desire is we want to do what the Scripture says. Um, yes. I think the approach of 1689 federalism is much more robust and sustainable, mm-hmm. as far well, as dis- even though I disagree well,
1: with it. it. It's historic, though, right? It's the historic Baptist position. We've always seen, historically, the baptism as being almost like a culmination of the conversion experience, right? It seals and confirms both to the, the party and the party being baptized— uh, and, and to the into the others who are there watching the the church the saints uh that the party has engaged uh to be the lords and that is now united with him um so i mean there's there's a it, to use presby terms <laughs> it's a sign and a seal we agree that there that there is in fact that taking place um which again is why you and I are are actually quite close when it comes to this view, our view of baptism. We both hold to a reformed view of baptism. It's the the recipients with whom we disagree.
0: Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and that I mean that brings us right up to kind of the the big beef of it. Which we you know for those of you guys that want a full like deep dive in this with Sam Renahan, go check out episode thirty nine if you haven't already. Listen yeah, to. An hour and a half, and then if you want another hour of content, join us on Patreon to hear the two and a half hour extended edition uh, with Sam Renahan talking about 1689 Covenant Theology. But, that said, what is... You know, in a nutshell, here and jumping in because it's important and it, and it distinguishes mm-hmm. you guys sharply from some of the non-confessional Creed of Baptists, as we've alluded to. Mm-hmm. What is this covenant theological framework that underpins 1689 federalism? Why it's not just a simplistic mm-hmm. uh, matter of proof texting, yeah. as some of the other as some of the other positions might be. You mind if I go, Justin? Please. All right. I need. I might need a minute to try to lay oh. this out.
2: Oh <laughs> um, shoot. So, as was discussed in previous episodes, um, the Reformed Baptists and then Credo Baptists would agree in our covenant theology that there are two overarching covenants: the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, um, that are are uh, have to do with with eternal life. Um, where there would be disagreement is that uh, as Reformed Baptists, we don't see any other covenant except for the New Covenant uh, as the covenant of grace. You know, the New Covenant is distinct. From the covenants that preceded it, and in this conversation about baptism, uh, we distinct will especially draw a line uh, between the new covenant and the Abrahamic covenant. Um, but the uh, the Abrahamic covenant it promised earthly blessings to an earthly people uh, in an earthly land, and we say the new covenant promises heavenly blessings to a heaven bound people, um, and the. The new covenant establishes uh, better and different promises, and we would say it alone is the covenant of grace, and it's distinct from all the Israelite covenants that came before it—the uh, you know the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic—and um, we would say that the covenant of grace, and this actually I think there is agreement between both camps in this, but I'm trying to lay out um, you know a logical train of thought here. But we would say the covenant of grace is the outworking in time and space of the covenant of redemption made between the persons of the Trinity in eternity past, where, you know, God the Father uh, elects a people and gives, you know, the Son a people, the Son in obedience, um, redeems that people. The Holy Spirit applies that redemption to those people. It is a covenant made uh, between the members and persons of the Trinity. And we would say uh, that the covenant of grace, that salvific covenant by which we're all saved, it was promised in the covenants that preceded the new covenant. But it wasn't established or formally ratified until the death of Christ in the new covenant. So we would say, for example, the Abrahamic covenant is not of the same substance as the covenant of grace, as the new covenant. Um, we would say that the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Christ or the church, they're related, um, but they're related like scaffolding that I'm using Sam Renahan. I'm actually using a lot from Sam Renahan here. I'm trying to distill it down. Cause that's what we do. We distill theology. <laughs> oh, yeah. Shoot. Um, but, uh, he relates it to like scaffolding to a building is how he describes it. That, um, Abraham's natural offspring, they were tenant workers. Uh, they were builders. They were given a promise of Messiah's birth and charged with preparing the way for his advent. Um, but that the kingdom of Israel, it terminated with the kingdom of Christ. Uh, God dismantled it. Jesus was not the chief cornerstone of the kingdom of Israel, nor were the apostles, the foundation. Um, And the kingdom of Christ is established uh, and it's based on regeneration, repentance, and faith. And faith is what we believe defines Christ's people. Um, So we would say that, uh, you know, many in Israel looked to Christ and they were saved prior to his advent. Um, you know, this was possible because of the promises made. The old covenants were full of typology. There were types and shadows of Christ. They knew to hope in a Messiah, and those who hoped in a Messiah by faith were saved. Um, but I think now trying to tie this up a little bit, um, when we're looking at who are the proper recipients of a covenant sign? Because that's what we're talking about, whether we're talking about circumcision or baptism, uh, Lord's Supper, these are covenant signs and who are the proper recipients of them. We have to look at who the members of a covenant are. Um, It's actually more than just looking at the members of a covenant, because for example, in the Abrahamic covenant, uh, even the females were members of the Abrahamic covenant, but they did not receive the sign of circumcision. So first we have to know um, who the members of a covenant are, and then we also have to know what positive laws and commands are associated with that covenant and the application of those signs. So, when looking at who the members of a covenant are, it's most helpful to look at who the federal head of a covenant is. Uh, we would say that Adam, Noah, Abraham each represented a group of people. As the as a federal head, they represented their natural offspring. David represented his natural offspring in the Davidic covenant, and then David and his sons represented the nation of Israel and Mosaic. So they were, again, federal heads of their respective covenants. Now Christ in the new covenant is also a federal head, and he represents a group of people, his natural or since he is God, his supernatural offspring, that is the elect. Um, so God the Father appointed God the Son as a covenant. Of as a covenant head back in the covenant of redemption to redeem a specific people. Therefore, I think we look at the covenant of redemption, not the Abrahamic as the pattern for covenant membership in the new covenant, because that is where Christ's headship is established. Um, And so we would say that Christ's offspring are born. And this is something these aren't all differences, obviously I'm just kind of trying to rattle down some stuff that I wrote. Um, And again, a lot of it's Sam's that I'm copying and pasting and blah, blah, blah. But some, a lot of this, uh, baptists and credo-baptists agree on. And so this is something that we're going to agree on right here that I'm going to say that Christ's offspring, well, you're going to agree with some of this. Christ's offspring are born by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and united to Christ by the Spirit through faith, right? Romans 8, 9, we all agree on that passage, that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, when we're talking about the proper recipients, um, we have to ask what it means to be in covenant with Christ. Um, and I think that it, it mis, it's misdirected to look at covenant, covenantal membership as parental to child uh, relationships, and it needs to be looked at federal head to um, representative, representative people kind of relationship. So I, I'm going to quote, I'm actually going to quote, quote, Sam right here. <clears throat> and he explains it like this, that we blame Adam, not our parents, for the curse, The Israelites look to Abraham, not their parents, for a claim to Canaan and its blessings, and to the conduct of the king, not their parents, for tenure in the land. So also, children must look to Christ, not their parents, for a claim to his covenant. Consequently, there has never been a covenant wherein believers and their children constituted the paradigm for covenant membership. The promise, that is salvation in general, and the indwelling of the Spirit in particular, it's proffered to them just as it is to the whole world. That's Acts 2, 16 through 41. He cites after that. Um, so we can go on, but just, I'm not going to just tie that up for a moment. i let you guys speak. But um, we're trying to figure out, there's disagreement over the covenant of grace. Is the Abrahamic covenant of the same substance? Is it not? We would say it is not. We would say that Christ is the federal head of the new covenant, of the covenant of redemption. The new covenant is the outworking of the covenant of redemption. As I said, um, Christ is not the federal head of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, and so to determine who the proper recipients of, uh, of the covenant signs are, you have to be a member of the covenant. What makes someone a member of the new covenant? What makes someone one of Christ's and, and only those who are Christ's are the proper recipients of baptism. And there's, I know there's going to be disagreement there, and um, we can continue. But what, do you, what are your guys' thoughts on that so far? Because like, there's a million other places we could go to.
1: Well, that's it. Ladies and gentlemen, we have solved baptism <laughs> no. for you. Uh, please convert to Baptist. Oh, there <laughs> it is. There it is. No, oh, it's, a good, it's
0: a great fire. That's
2: really a summary. That's not even an argument. Like, we can talk yeah. about why. Yeah. So, it, I know this isn't like a critique. It meant to be an episode where this critiquing pedo-baptism. Um it's but it oftentimes helps to look at uh you know contrast things, so we would look at um the pado baptist under at least the reformed pado baptist understanding where uh they would say that the children are covenant members, that Christ is their covenant head, their federal head, at least in some sense, and there's a dichotomy there between um being in the substance of the covenant right uh and just uh being in the outward administration of it. And we would say we don't see that in Scripture, at least not in the New Covenant. Um, and we would say that only those who have profe- who who have been regenerated and been given the gift of faith are actually Christ's own. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. In well, he's not talking about baptism specifically, but in Romans eight nine, mm-hmm. that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So, um, I think we would all agree that only members of the covenant receive uh, the covenant signs. But there's disagreement as to who members of the covenant are so yeah i, I
1: would agree with that solid assessment
0: although i'm gonna i'm gonna s- try to stump you here with a question that i'm Please sure do. you came prepared for no problem uh, which is which is to say this because i think those are all very good points and again i as you've alluded there's some disagreement and we'll get into that more in the Paedobaptist episode um next week but one point that I would ask of of Creative Baptists who hold that federal headship of of we're only applying the sign to those to who to those who are federally joined to Christ, right? Christ is the federal head of the members of the New Covenant and those are the proper recipients of baptism. So how then do we know about false professions of faith? Or mm-hmm. What do we do with those people who who profess faith and and have zeal and knowledge and all of this, and then you know twenty, thirty years later apostatize and die in their sins? We have to um, communicate them. <laughs> right, ultimately, I mean, it's the <laughs> no, same but just pro- continue. Sorry, <laughs> it's the same. It's
1: the same problem that the that the Pado Baptists have.
0: I mean, oh, exactly, and, right, and, and that's the, same, the point I'm the trying same to raise. Issue. Actually, it was. That's exactly right. what I'm getting at. Yeah. Is is none of us? And I, and I know you guys know that. I'm not trying. That wasn't really. I try to get mm-hmm. you question. It was more just for the benefit of, of people listening, um, to see those connections. That that no matter which side we're on, if we're a Reformed Pentecostal Baptist or Reformed Credit Baptist, we wrestle with this nature of of apostas of of people who receive the sign of baptism who apostatize. Yeah, and whether you're a Paedobaptist Baptist and you believe the promises to your children, and and we apply the sign to to our children and to new converts, or you're a Credo-Baptist and you apply it to people who profess faith. I I, I actually think
1: it's consistent to be Credo-Baptist in the sense that uh, in the same way we look at the Lord's Supper, those who drink unworthily are drinking judgment on themselves. In the same way I would say those who are making a false profession of faith and participating in baptism unworthily are also baptizing judgment upon themselves. Yes. I think that's consistent and I think that's, that's.
2: There's a, there's a, absolutely. There's a guardian of the table uh, as reformed pastors would uh, sometimes refer to it. Um, Fencing the table. Fencing the table. Thank you. Fencing the table of the Lord's supper to ensure that only those sometimes depends on the church, people who are members or people who have credible professions, or even sometimes just simply giving a stern warning to non-believers to not partake. There's still a desire and a recognition that only covenant members ought to be receiving um the the Lord's Supper, receiving the sacraments or the ordinances. Now we do the same with baptism. Baptists just essentially fence the baptismal more than uh, we, we fence you know, the table and the Baptist. pool. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so we're guarding that, we're fencing that more uh for a for a um credible profession of faith. It is similar to a Presbyterian church is with the table.
1: Which further makes the the importance of having it done by an ordained Minister of the gospel uh, important because he should be able to discern the body in the same way when he's when he's uh, administering uh, the Lord's supper. Right, it's mm-hmm. his job to make sure he's he's giving it to the people who are uh, worthy recipients of said supper. in The same mm-hmm. way with baptism, um, he can do that, and and it's important to have a minister of the gospel there to do that. That's why we can't just anybody can just dunk you.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good, and and again, I wasn't trying to. To do it, gotcha. I just wanted to get that right. conversation because I think it's an important uh, on both sides of the well, discussion. That's an important question,
2: right? And 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 exactly is and and this is where we don't see a mixed covenant. We don't see a mixed covenant people as Baptists. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant you had people who were Abraham's offspring uh, according to the flesh, and then Abraham's mm-hmm. offspring according to the spirit. Uh, those who trusted and had faith in the coming Messiah, just as Abraham did. They were, they were his offspring, according to the spirit. Um, And, you know, if you were just, you were from his loins and you were his great, 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 great grandson somewhere along the lines, uh, you had a right to the land because you were his offspring after the flesh. Now there were some who were both. Uh, There were some who were who Abraham's physical offspring and his spiritual offspring. Uh, And so we would say, recognize the Abrahamic covenant, uh, there was a mixed nature to it, but we would say that as Baptists, we would say that there is not a mixed nature to the new covenant that you cannot, um, that Christ cannot be your federal head. He cannot be interceding for you. You you cannot be in covenant with him um, and not be saved and not be regenerated, not have faith. So um, a passage uh, that I'd like to read is John chapter one, verse 12, uh to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of god so john's saying here that that it's those who are born uh of god those who are uh reborn um they are christ's children and so we would agree Um, And we may or may not get to um, talk about the difference between baptism and circumcision and is there a difference and what might that be? But when it came to circumcision, it wasn't um, Israelites and their children. It was the offspring of Abraham that were to receive circumcision, the sign of the covenant. And with baptism, the offspring of Christ received the covenant sign. It's just we're told who the offspring of Christ are. It is... It is those who have faith, those who are born not of blood or the will of the flesh, but of God. So it, hereditary, uh, parental relationships, all of that stuff. It has nothing to do with who is and who is not the son of Christ or his offspring. I mean. So
0: what you're saying is your children are pagans. Absolutely. <laughs> vipers, 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 vipers and diapers, isn't that? <laughs> uh, Bodhi <laughs> Bachman. Yeah. No, I just had to, I had to get in one of those, uh, the Jordan Peterson, that, that horrible interview. So, what you're, so what you're saying is... Yeah. Kathy Newman. That's such a terrible interview. But anyways, mm-hmm. um there I mean there is actually kind of a, a question of implication there but we'll get there. But you you were talking about circumcision. Let, let's go there. Let's do it. Um you and Justin. So Justin, circumcision is clearly a I'll, I'll let you go. I I can't I can't keep up the the act. I'm too tired. I'll uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I I'll let you I, take I was it away.
1: I was uh looking back at the at the Orthodox catechism from Hercules Collins again. Oh. Uh, Because he asked this question, right? Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. (laughs) He says, uh, that was one of my favorites growing up, by the way. Uh, He says, by the infant, um, or the question is, if the infant children of believers are in the covenant of grace with the parents, as some say, why may not they be baptized under the gospel as well as Abraham's uh, infant descendants were circumcised under the law? Well, the answer says this, by the infant children of believers being in the covenant of grace, it must be meant... Either be meant that the covenant of grace, absolutely considered, and if so, then there can be no total total falling away of any infant believer, children of believers, uh, from the covenant. They must all be saved, or they must mean conditionally on consideration of what they that they may come to an age of maturity. They, by true faith and love and holiness of life, taking hold of God's covenant of grace, shall then have spiritual privileges of it. This being their sense, I ask then, what real spiritual privilege uh, the. Children, um, the infant children of believers have more than the infant children of unbelievers, if they live also to years of maturity and by true faith come and take hold of God's covenant. I further demand whether the seal of the covenant does not belong as much to the children of unbelievers as to the children of believers, and more too if some infant children of unbelievers take hold of God's covenant and some infant children of believers do not, as is often occurs to the sorrow of many godly parents um suppose all the infant children of believers are absolutely in the covenant of grace well then the believers under the gospel should not baptize their infant children any more than Lot had warranted to circumcise himself or his infant children although he was closely related to Abraham a believer and in the covenant of grace too since circumcision was limited as Eric said to Abraham and his family also, by the same rule, we should bring infants to the Lord's table, since some qualifications are required for the proper administration of baptism and Lord's Supper. And then you could get in a whole discussion of pate communion, but that's another thing. Um, but that touches no. on the same thing, right? That, <laughs> that circumcision was limited to Abraham's family and his offspring. Um, and that's in, that's important and I think often overlooked. Mm-hmm. And I, he could go on for... He's got like 15
2: paragraphs. I'm not going to read it yeah. all. But. And that's a catechism, folks. You're supposed to memorize all that. Heck Yeah. get on it (laughs) uh yeah so so let's let's go to um a verse that that the paedo-baptists like talking about as well uh that that seems to relate circumcision with baptism this is colossians 2 uh, 11 through 13 um, it says, In him, that means in Christ also, you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so we see baptism and circumcision. Um, spoken of in pretty much the same sentence there, and and we, and oftentimes it's see it's a direct replacement. And I would, I would say it's not a replacement, it's never said to be a replacement, you don't see anywhere um, where it's explicitly said to be a replacement of circumcision and it's not a one-to-one, but I do think what we are seeing here is an analogy. And yep. in an analogy, you're comparing two things that are actually dissimilar, two things that are not alike, but you are finding things that are alike in them. And one of the things that I would say you find uh, um, similar between baptism and circumcision is one, that they're both signs of the, their respective covenants. Now in this, uh, it says, uh, Paul is saying that you were circumcised with a, in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And for him to make a distinction and differentiation between, uh, you know, circumcision, circumcision made with and without hands here, I think what he's doing is more um commenting on circumcision then he is drawing a uh, one-to-one relation between baptism being the carryover and to treat it as one would have treated circumcision in the Old Testament. He's saying what circumcision pointed towards, which was a circumcision of the heart. And that's what Christ did. That's what Christ has done for us, you know, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And then having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. I also think it's important here to look at the tense, because Paul is saying, um, you, you having been baptized in which you were also raised, you were raised with him through faith, right? So the faith came first, the baptism followed, as we often see in the New Testament in, in Acts, we see people uh, first receiving the gift of faith. And then professing that faith through the act of baptism. I think the the tense there is really important, but I do not think that in this passage Paul's drawing a one-to-one, but I think he is um uh he's he's drawing similarities between the two. And he also says in Philippians 3, verse 3 that he says, for we are the circumcision who worship uh, the Spirit of God, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. He's saying there that believers are the circumcision, the true circumcision. He's not saying believers and their children. He's referring to only those who have faith are what true circumcision represented. And uh, to quote Sam Waldron, and then I'll, I'll stop talking, but Sam Waldron said, um, he said that baptism therefore professes what circumcision demanded. Circumcision did demand a new heart, indeed, but it did not profess a new heart. Baptism professes a new heart.
0: Boom. So yeah, boom. <laughs> <laughs> These guys. Uh, These guys. No, that's good. That's a good it's a good run, Justin. Or good run. That's a good run, Eric. Justin, <laughs> you've been you haven't. Come on, man. What you got? What you talking about? I've been reading.
1: I've been I mean, <laughs> boy, so you, crazy. You, boy crazy. you crazy. Boy, you
0: crazy. Well, since I don't want to run the whole episode too too long, and I know there's a lot of other notes you guys have in here, so we can do some of that for Patreon. But I do want to get to um, a couple specific points that we had in there, so we can circle back to. Um, what does it signify? Uh, I think we already alluded to it a little bit. Can I can I just read here
2: a short quote from Sam okay, Renahan? It. It's, it's really short and sweet, and I think it will tell us what it signifies, right? Do it. Baptism portrays the promises of God and the believer's trust in them. It symbolizes God's promise that all who trust in Christ have entered death and judgment in him and emerged as new creations. Baptism is also the individual's public affirmation of trust in those very promises and a declaration that they are a new creation— Buried with Christ in the waters of death, the believer rises, symbolically, alive in him. It is not a symbol of what might be in the future, but what the individual claims is indeed presently true. So in a nutshell, I know we wanted to get to that, but in a nutshell, that's what it
0: signifies no, to the good. Credo Baptist. Well, that, that gets me to one last question for both of you guys. And I know you guys have some notes, but we can kind of flow and pull off the notes if you want here. Um, this question is partly inspired by true events of uh, I, I've used this example before, but it's just a good one. It's a public one, and it's one of two brothers who who share fellowship, who share a pulpit uh, at conferences to preach the gospel. Um, but it's a it's a situation where a, a Baptist, a Reformed Baptist pastor, will not allow a Presbyterian minister to participate in the supper, and oh. but he'll allow him to preach because he was baptized as a child. So Mark Dever won't let Ligon Duncan participate in the supper. He'll fence him from the table. But he allows him to preach at his church. Is this consistent or inconsistent? And I know that's a little bit of a big question, but the reason I'm getting to that is more to get to the next question, which is why 1689ers would reject Reformed Mm paedobaptism. And obviously Justin and I talked about this last week, about in the context of, of 1689 federalism, if you have somebody who is baptized as an infant, as I understand it, and they come to embrace sixteen eighty nine federalism and they choose to be baptized as a believer, while everything in my Presbyterian heart is, is screeching at that, as I understand it from a sixteen eighty nine point of view, it's like, well, you didn't, you weren't baptized as a child. That was just like you took a bath. You got therefore, wet. it's not a rebaptism, which mm-hmm. is an important distinction in an area that Baptists and Presbyterians theoretically agree, even though. You know, there, there's some disagreement in the practicality of that, uh, mm-hmm. as far as how that plays out. But you guys aren't what KG Presbyterians online accuse you of being of like, oh, right. But reformed both, Baptists are just Anabaptists. So, so both reformed Pado Baptists Baptist and
2: reformed Baptists, right. We, we, we don't agree with rebaptizing. We believe right in right. one baptism. Right. We're not Anabaptists. Um, exactly. We're not Anabaptists. Um,
0: Say it and again I louder in the back, Presby. KG Presby's <laughs> online. Our 16 and 9 what friends. They're not Anabaptists. <laughs> they are not Anabaptists. Just cut it out. Um, we, we can disagree with them without, you know, strawmanning. Yeah, and I want to come back to your first question, but like, and there's more
2: that could be said about this. But yes, in a nutshell, it is that, that the Reformed Baptist does not recognize the baptism of an infant as being a proper baptism. And we can talk about why, mm-hmm. um, but... Essentially that's it. Like that 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 is why um we would require another baptism. But the Lord's Supper thing, I could see why a reformed baptist pastor would uh fence the table. I could also see why they wouldn't in that situation. Yeah, that I can understand be. both sides of the argument um that that if they recognize um you know someone like Ligon's baptism as an infant as being not a true baptism, then they see that person as being in sin if they have not been baptized as a professing a believer. And so saying, you know, look, we, if someone is actively living in sin or, or not living in sin, just in unrepentant sin, haven't, haven't, um, you know, remedied this situation for lack of a better word right now. Um, then we're going to bar you from the table. I could see why someone would do that. I could also understand uh, a brother showing another, another brother grace in that instance. Um, is it within the pastor's purview to do so? What is their requiring with the Lord's table? Again, that there's, there's a lot of discussion around that, but I could see someone saying, look, they truly believe, you know, they believe something that's false, but they believe that their baptism was a true baptism. Um, In 99% of other things we agree. uh, They are, I believe them to be a true Christian. Therefore I will allow them to partake of the Lord's supper at my church. Um, I could also understand that it's kind of one of those things. And yeah that's a tough spot. That's a tough yeah. spot that that some yeah. people yeah. end
0: up in and I'm not trying to pit anybody against anybody. I just think it's, it's a good real life example of some of the practical mm-hmm. distinctions between our camps sure. and, and, and again, he preaches at Mark's Church, so it's not like there's animosity between them right and that's a beautiful picture as well, but it's also it, it provides a point of contrast. I
2: do think there's a little inconsistency there. Sorry, Justin, I don't mean to step no, on you. No, uh, go for just, it. just with that, like, yeah. I'd have to look into it more, but it, I find it interesting that you would allow a man to preach, but you'd bar him from your the table, and if your reasoning for barring him from the table is that he's living in sin. I don't know if that's Devers' reasoning, it, yeah. I, because one thing we don't see... Um, is that baptism is required to be a participant of the Lord's Supper. A believer, yes, and, and as Baptists, we would say that part of becoming a believer and professing that faith, you ought to be baptized, but um, as long as someone uh, is is not partaking in an unworthy manner, they ought to be allowed at the table. So I don't believe baptism is required to partake of the Lord's Supper. So right. I don't know what Devers' reasoning is on that, at least not off the top of my head. But. Well,
1: it's like, I, I would also argue, I mean, we, for example, we, at our church, we don't have a like a baptismal pool. We baptize in the river nearby uh, or uh, a pool if, if there's one available. But like if somebody's saved in the middle of a New York winter, we have nowhere to baptize them. Uh, we mm. may wait till the, the spring thaw <laughs> uh, yeah. to baptize them, even though they've Ah, uh, made a profession of faith, and they've become grafted into the in, into the body of Christ. Uh, we don't bar them from the table there because they haven't yet been baptized. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, Wait, you wouldn't just sprinkle them and call them good? <laughs> no, we, we like a little more water than that, you know, to <laughs> signify
1: a burial and resurrection. Yeah, I don't uh, think we'll get
2: to it here, but, like, w- <laughs> why immersion? What That, what that a actually mode of reminds baptism,
1: me of yeah. a, a meme. I think, Blake, you sent, sent it to me. It was like a Presbyterian funeral, and it's just like a little bit of dirt on the guy instead of being buried. <laughs> oh no, I do
0: have a, I do actually have a quote here from ninemarks.org and this is written by Mark Dever, and he says, uh, in this journal I wrote, quote, I have many dear Pato-Baptist friends from whom I've learned much, yet I see their practice as sinful, though sincere, mm. error, uh, though, as a sinful, though sincere error, from which God protects them by allowing for inconsistency in their doctrinal system, just as He graciously protects me from, my, from inconsistency within my own errors. Uh, he says, that statement, much to my surprise, has caused... Uh, concern among some, that a Baptist thinks infant baptism is wrong was no news to earlier generations of (laughs) beta-Baptists. Today it seems to be a surprise. Now, the truth is out, all of these years I have been cooperating with those who I take to be sinners legan Duncan, Pete Jensen, Philip Jensen, Philip Reichen, J A. Packer, and many others too numerous to name—sinners specifically on this point of infant baptism. I have been speaking with them at conferences, having them as friends, reading their books, learning from them, and inviting them to preach in our congregation, even as I happily preach in theirs. Indeed, several Pato-Baptist ministers have articles in the same journal. Um, so, I don't have the rest of his whole flow here. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You guys yeah, can look uh, it up. If, if and, you just look up Ligon Duncan uh Mark Dever baptism, it's one of the first things that comes up and you can read the whole statement for yourself. But yeah, that's the flow of it. So it sounds like it is kind of in line with um Yeah, yeah, I don't want to get too like off subject and
2: start trying to examine, you know, Mark Dever's specific theology on something like this yeah. where we're talking more generally here, but as you said, Blake, that's just one example of of where these these doctrines can divide us. You know, doctrine I think does unite. Uh, we we as believers unite around the core tenets of the faith, and in our our local churches we unite around maybe more secondary and tertiary doctrines. But um, yeah, there there that does sometimes create issue when it comes to Sunday morning fellowship with Presbyterians and Baptists and mm-hmm. other Pado Baptists as well. Um, but I do think your other question about Why we reject uh, reformed paedo uh, (coughs) Paedo baptism, excuse me. Obviously, uh, you know, uh, Catholic Roman Catholic baptism. We don't need to talk about that, but specifically reformed paedo baptism. And I would say, it ultimately it it symbolizes something that is not in alignment with our beliefs um, about what baptism represents. You know, we we deny the claim that is made in paedo-baptism. We don't see it as true baptism because we have, can infants be elect? Absolutely. They absolutely can, but there is no way to know for sure. Um, And, and so we don't know that we have no profession of faith. Um, We can't as Baptists uh, fence the baptismal. And uh, we also, we we just disagree with what the claim that's being made. Um, We see it as, as the, you know, um, the claim that the children of believers are participators just by nature of being uh, related to believing parents—that they are in covenant with Christ, that they are part of the covenant community—and we we would disagree with that. So,
1: yeah, yeah, we we would have to affirm that you can participate in the benefits of being in the covenant of grace before you're in the ben, before you're in the covenant of grace, essentially, um, and and we wouldn't see that as being consistent, right? Um, because we don't believe that you can be in part of the covenant. You can't be part of the covenant of grace until you've made that profession of faith and you've repented, uh, and, and been born again into the covenant.
2: Well, yeah, yes. Uh, we, well, I think you can have elect infants. Like you can be part of the covenant sure. of grace, um, prior to maybe necessarily being able to profess it with your mouth. That is, I think it's, it's possible. Absolutely. Um, Right, profession we have, is not like required said, we to actually no be elect, right? But we have right, no way we don't to, know. to know that, and and we're doing the best with what we've been given with the commands that we've been given in Scripture. And I will say, on that point, <laughs> on the commands that we're given, we don't see a command anywhere in the New Testament at Testament to baptize infants. And I want to quote Sam uh, Sam Renahan again here. Um He says. Consequential reasoning, that is, if the, if this, then that statements, uh, though important, valid, and necessary in theology in general, it is, not a, it is not valid in the observation of positive laws, that is, laws that depend only on what is commanded. Only a command from Scripture, whether from Christ, the epistles, or the apostles' example, can institute and regulate our new covenant sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Not only would it be illegitimate to use another covenant's ordinances to govern the new covenant, but also one cannot deviate from God's commands based on inferences. If God requires the first fruits of the flock, surely the first fruits of my fields will please him. Not so, says Sam. So um we we see a command to baptize those who profess. Uh we see Christ himself commanding us, we see the uh, the apostles' example. We see Paul. So what what we are saying is that the new covenant has its own positive laws, positive commands, precepts that uh, are part of that covenant. Just as you had uh, certain commands uh, part of the Mosaic code, part of the yeah. Abrahamic covenant, circumcision is no longer something we practice. That was positive law. That was a command yeah. given in that and for that covenant. Um, and so we would say we don't we don't see it commanded.
1: Right, so it's an issue of the regulative principle. Ultimately, mm-hmm. um, it would be, in our estimation, and uh, outside of the regulative principle, to participate in something that wasn't otherwise commanded to participate in.
0: So mm-hmm. that's good. Well, thank you, guys. We're going to get into some more spicy time on <laughs> Patreon, but before we do that, uh, I'm just going to recommend out there, throw this out there, because it's a good history, and obviously it's coming from a Presbyterian bent. But I think just as a, as a a big text on the subject. Um, John Fesco's Word, Water, and Spirit. Um, and obviously he's go just spoiler alert, he's coming from a Paedobaptist perspective, but he does do a good job of covering a lot of the differences between uh Reformed Baptists and Reformed Paedobaptists, um, as well as some of the other issues um that kind of go around it. So I'd recommend that. It's a it's a big book, it's a dense book, um, but it's worth it's worth the read, uh, and you guys on Distilling Theology are, are our listeners are certainly not uh, immune to us offering uh, large large texts for reading. But what would you guys recommend if people have heard <laughs> yeah, this you're, and, and you're, we've we've wet their appetites? Um, yeah, that's my recommendation. As like, hey, if you just want a kind of big overview and you want to understand the Peta-Baptist view a little bit more uh, in light of what you've heard head over there, but if people want a mm-hmm. positive presentation of credo-baptism from a 1689 perspective, well, uh, yeah. what books would you guys recommend?
1: I definitely think you should check out Baptism of Disciples Alone by Fred Malone, who is a former Presbyterian minister mm-hmm. uh, who, who is now a Baptist minister. Uh, so check that out. He explains why pedo is incorrect and why he no longer affirms pedo-baptism.
2: Yeah. And your listeners are smart and they can handle big books, but if they're dumb like me and they want something smaller and easier and, and, and Fred Malone's book is not, it's a nice medium size. That's a good one, Justin. Um, I would recommend, well, first of all, um, Sam Renahan has a short article. It's, it's from what I pulled, some of what I've said tonight. Um, it's called the case for credo baptism. Mm -hmm. Just search that title, Sam's name. It'll come up. It's like he has 14 points. He, he, he goes through pretty short. Um, and then some short books, little little almost pamphlet-sized ones, um, one called From Pado baptism to Credo-Baptism. That's by Gary Crampton. Um, he also was a Presbyterian minister who became a Credo-Baptist. And fun it's a fun little book to read, and he goes into why the Westminster Confession of Faith contradicts itself on the subject of baptism, which maybe Justin and I will talk about oh. in the, the after-patron section. Um, also, there's another little one called Covenant Children Today by Alan Connor. Both of those last two are put out by RBAP, Reformed Baptist Academic Press. Whoa. And then, not really on baptism, but it's also short, maybe about 100 pages, um, uh, early 19th century, I believe, a, a guy named Abraham Booth. Wrote it, yeah, an boy. essay. Yeah, he wrote something called an essay on the kingdom of Christ. And in it, uh, he does a great job of just laying out the differences between the Abrahamic covenant, the the uh the new covenant, the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant, and uh just really great. So
1: Yeah. Yeah, solid stuff. I I've read the uh the article by Sam. It's fantastic for summarizing
2: the position. Yeah, it's short. It's it's like one page out of Fesco's massive tome. There, but, it's like um, a, it's like a delicious
1: two ounce pour of of yeah. scotch, not the whole bottle.
2: And, and he's got a lot of you know um, uh, verses that he references that I recommend you guys look up. Obviously, if you come across verses, look them up. Don't just assume that uh, yeah. it means yeah. what the author is saying that it means. You know,
0: <laughs> absolutely. That's good. I'm yeah. also, as a Presbyterian, I'm going to say, guys, go to reformstandards.com and read the 1689 on these chapters about baptism and about sacrament. Like, understand the 1689 position. If you're a 1689er or a Reformed Baptist and you've never read it, go do it. Go understand mm-hmm. your theology. And if you're a Presbyterian or an Anglican or Lutheran and you're, and you're like, what's with these? Go read their confession and understand yeah. and, and have that engagement with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah,
1: but both Blake and I, before we became reformed, I think we both read through both confessions or mm-hmm. yeah. uh, in, in many of the other documents before we finally landed firmly on either side or any position. Yeah. Um I actually read through the yeah, I actually read through the um, through all the Dutch articles as well, oh, and yeah. almost became a Pado Baptist myself, but consequently. Uh God much, saved you. Yeah, God, 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 God <laughs> saved me and, and, and kept me he wow. actually pushed me staunchly into a, a Credo Baptist position. Wow. So, uh, this actually well, happened to my friend uh Caleb as well. Shout out to my friend Caleb, he's awesome. Um he he almost became a pedo-baptist as well, and what it did in turn was actually make him significantly more staunchly a Credo Baptist. Oh man, this is <sighs> the way. So. Caleb had me worried
2: there for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what's really cool, guys, if you go and you read both uh, the Westminster and the the London Baptist Confession, uh, the second one, sorry. Um, if you read those and the sections on baptism, you'll see that there's a section where the, the um, Westminster divines referred to baptism as not only a sign, but also a seal, whereas the Baptists kept that out. They refer to it only as a sign, not a seal, um, and maybe Justin and I will get into talking about that as well. Nice teaser, hmm.
0: yeah. So Blake, Hang out with us after everybody, Blake, yeah. what do we
1: got going on, uh, on next week?
0: Oh, I'm excited. Next week. <laughs> Get a whole, you get to rain on your uh, Creative Baptist parade with a Payta Baptist episode because this week was the Baptist parade. Um, we're going to be sprinkling uh, some substance into our podcast. Uh, just it's going to be fun. Uh, and we're going to be tasting something to be determined. So I'm going to add that in later on. Are you sure about that? But before we do the rest of our thing, I just wanted to say we got two new five star reviews on iTunes that I would like to read and, and gratefully uh, from some listeners. So one listener writes, uh, the title is new to reformed. And they said, I just recently began to look into reformed theology and I never realized how deep this rain puddle is. I was going to wait to write a review until I was farther along in the series, but I just finished your reformation day episode, which is like episode three, uh, <laughs> and heard all of Martin Luther's 95 theses. I have listened to all releases of all released assurance apart in episodes they're awesome. That's awesome. great. And after this one, I plan on doing the same with Distilling Theology. Once I catch up, I'll write another review, but I wanted to t- uh, tell you all to keep it up. Well, thank you, Justin, uh, from I Arkansas. Hope, I hope that person makes it all the way to this episode and hears hope review. And then we have one other review here. Uh, five stars. I love this podcast. They said, there are so many things I love about this podcast. First, I'm learning so much about Reformed theology, but also learning on layman's terms. Blake and Justin, and I'll add by proxy, Eric, have a great way of explaining things in a way that simple-minded people like me could understand. First of all, you're not simple-minded, my dear. If you're listening—if you're digesting theology, you're not simple-minded. But he goes on and says, Second, you can tell these guys truly enjoy each other and the topics they discuss. Thank you, Distilling Theology, for what you are doing here. So, Thank you, listeners, for the reviews. If you guys enjoy the show, please go over to iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Leave us a five-star review. Tell us what you think. We'll probably read it on the air because we like feeling good about ourselves. (laughs) uh, Let's be honest. And I enjoy uh, the company of these gentlemen. This has been such a blast. Absolutely. Um, And and even though, obviously, this this is an episode where there's a lot of disagreement, I still find great unity in Christ with Eric and with Justin, and I'm grateful that we can sit around and discuss this topic, hmm. and not get hot-headed or, or obnoxious, and we can just dive in and, and and talk about it. So thank you guys for for all of that. Now, Justin, if folks want to uh, get more Distilling Theology in their feeds, where can they go? Well,
1: guys, there's a lot of places you can go. Uh, I actually recommend going to distillingtheology.com, because from there you can reach us in our other areas, uh, Facebook uh, of course, we have uh, facebook.com slash Distilling Theology. We have a page uh, that you can like. You can also join us in our Facebook group, which is an absolute hoot and a riot. Uh, I highly recommend it. It is still to this day somehow, uh, by the grace of God, the most sage-stage Facebook group for Reformed Christians you will find on the Internet. That's um true. Also, check us out on Instagram at Distilling Theology for recommendations for books, drinks, and just some really cool, beautiful content. I mean, the photographs on there are really quite... uh, They're pleasing to the eyes. So uh, go treat your eyeballs to uh, Distilling Theology on Instagram. Uh, Guys, also, uh, if you want to join our Distilling Theology family, uh, check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Distilling Theology. You can join us. uh, You can support us uh, to really ultimately... Blake and I, uh, and by proxy Eric, can do this uh, with us. Um, we no can do support. this every week because of because <laughs> of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> because of you guys um, supporting us for four ninety nine a month, you can get uh, extra content. You can get video content. You get to see all this uh, cool stuff that we got going on right now. You can see Eric's glorious mustache, uh, and you can and you can join us. It costs less than uh, an overpriced. Uh, pumpkin spice latte that you ultimately don't want and you will regret having later I mean Um,
2: my mustache could be better but it is definitely better than an overpriced (laughs) pumpkin spice latte it's worth paying that much to see it
1: oh absolutely plus it comes out early about a week or so in advance Mm -hmm. uh, depending on uh, depending on the week uh, and then you get all the bonus content after we hit uh, stop uh, for recording uh, the regular episode, you get all the bonus fun, fun conversation that you don't get otherwise. And for fourteen ninety nine a month, you can actually get uh, some free, uh, well, some cool merchandise that you can't get elsewhere uh, for for supporting us after your first three months. So join us there as well, uh, and we got some exclusive content for those people only coming up soon. So thank you guys, we appreciate you patrons especially.
0: Um, Amen. Couldn't do it without you. Amen. Oh, and uh, just also a, reminder, a discount in
1: the oh, store, Theology.com. You become a patron, you get 10% off all your
0: goods, man. This is the way. And also the way is to go follow the Society of Reformed Podcasters, a network of doctrinally sound podcasts from a reform perspective. The roll call includes Assurance Apart in the Bobcast, Christ in Context, Distilling Theology, Fast God Stuff, Five Points Church Planting Podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude, Reformed Brotherhood, Reformed Pilgrims, Restless, Seeker Start, Sipping on Theology, Steady Anchor, and The Particular Baptist Podcast. Head over to reformedpodcasts.com to get this entire back catalog of all these programs. Also, just as a side note, Austin recently changed Sipping on Theology to uh, the Indy Church Plant um, because he is now pastoring a church plant in Indianapolis. So, uh, Keep up the good work, uh, the Gospel Ministry Austin, and others uh, in in the society who are uh, ordained ministers of the gospel, which we have quite a few actually, as well as some seminarians. So there's people quite smarter than us and quite uh, far more qualified than us to to speak on these topics. But we're grateful to all of you that stick around and listen to us week listen, after week. We get to take what they say.
1: And 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 make it easier to hear.
0: You could say <laughs> we distill uh, it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Blake. <laughs> <laughs> dang, it, dang it, Eric, you beat me to my own joke.
0: Oh, I love it. Oh man, well we got to close this thing somehow. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Solely, deo Gloria. gloria. <laughs> Guys, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Distilling Theology. We hope you enjoyed it. Check out this sneak preview from the Extended Conversation, which is available exclusively at patreon.com slash distillingtheology.
1: He's now going to think over all the things we've said, and yeah, right. and it's it's watering over him, it's washing over him.
2: Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> immersing him, he's just drowning. Oh, and, dude. Uh, Dude, we need him here, though, like, to rein us in. Uh, I, I, listen, this is Distilling Theology
1: unplugged now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you geez. could say Do it's you... Distilling Theology
0: unfiltered.
1: See, <laughs> <laughs> so he can't help it. He's got to stay he's, and listen.
2: He's going to be there the whole time. <laughs> his, his camera's off. He's telling us that he's not here. But as soon as there's something that he objects strongly he's to, gonna enough, like, yeah, he's going to jump in. Yeah, he's going to jump in. Yeah, I know. Uh, What do you want to talk about, man? Do you even want to talk about credo-baptism anymore? (laughs) I don't even know, man. There's so many things.
1: There's so many things we can talk about.